Hello, I'm Elizabeth, an obsessive backyard gardener who might be able to offer you a couple of tips. And I'm Keith, a landscape consultant, and I'm also passionate about gardening. The one thing we both have in common is muddy muddy boots. boots. There's been a lot of discussion over the last few years about the pluses and minuses of commercially grown staples such as wheat. How does a commercial product differ from that grown with historic or traditional farming? This week, Muddy Boots is lucky to have the company of Turong Farms' Jason Cotter, whose passion is the cultivation and promotion of heritage, ancient and modern wheat varieties without any of the genetic modifications so often found in commercial products. I can tell you firsthand that the produce that comes from Jason's fields is outstanding, delicious and no doubt a lot better for us than what we find on the supermarket shelves. Welcome, Jason, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. (laughs) All right. Keith first. What what gave you the passion to to grow these old and ancient ancient wheats? I mean, you know, what was it? What was the driving force? Uh, I I mean, I was interested in uh, wheat generally and to see whether it could grow on the peninsula. So when I first started growing wheat, it was commercial varieties Mm -hmm. that, that grew very well. And in terms of, I guess, different genetics and heritage wheats and ancient grains, it was more of have a collector's bent. So if I get into something, I you know research it, and I started collecting older wheats. And there was a I guess a push overseas for non-commodity grains grown where there's relationships between the farmer, the miller, and the baker with feedback loops that are sort of outside uh, the commodity system. And so we started growing the wheat at a time when bakers in Melbourne, in particular, were interested in. Uh, accessing grains like that and having direct relationships with farmers. And part of that is a sort of a a revival of uh, heirloom and and heritage varieties across the the food system. I think some of that's probably nostalgia, and I'm happy to talk about that, Mm. but some of it's also accessing a sort of deep genetic history of uh, wheat. It's a a plant that's been so associated with humanity for almost 10,000 years, and over that time... It's been travelled all around the world by various means. So yeah. It's a real staple of life, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's the foundation of our civilization in many ways. So wheat uh, is probably the crop that meant that people could harvest something and yeah. then store it and then stay in one place. So it's at the foundation of city-states and countries and so many things, really. So yeah. it's kicked off a lot of things, even in recent times. So the, the Arab Spring was about wheat and flour supply in Egypt and then so much flowed on from that. The grain trade during the Second World War, uh, so much uh, global power plays are related about the grain trade and even now so much of Ukraine is actually about grain and controlling probably one of the greatest food bowls in the world, which it's always been. They have uh, particular soil and climate and rainfall that means you can grow huge volumes of uh, wheat and other crops on lower input than you can elsewhere in the world, and you can still wow. get quality marks. So grain's still at the centre of so much in our uh, society. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about that, talking about soil, how did you? How does it grow on the Mornington Peninsula, and how did you have to modify, you know, work with the soil to be able to grow it, to grow wheat successfully? Yeah, so at our farm, we've got a sandy loam soil. It's not mm. ideal. It doesn't hold on to nutrition as well as some of the other soil profiles in the peninsula. So the, the red country and the, the black country further down is great growing country for anything. So mm. Further uh, down being? Oh, sort of before you say, like, there's a, a pocket of it 
Flinders to Cape Shank, which is sort of different geology, not the sandy stuff. There's a really deep black uh, soil there that's on one side of Bush Rangers Bay, I guess. Okay. So that, that side is amazing. The other side, that's not as great. We can't push the, the yields that you can, say, at the top of Western Port in Rup or you know, in the Western District or further afield. We don't have the, the structure and the, I guess, water holding capacity and a few other things that limit what we can do but some varieties do better than others one thing you know positive thing you can say about older wheats that isn't um about nostalgia is well there's several things that Mm. because we can get into that but in terms of growing they've got a different um, plant architecture so below ground their the root system is bigger and different angles and their ability to scavenge nutrients is often better so they can achieve higher protein on lower nutrition. The above ground architecture is it's taller so there's better weed suppression but the problem with having a taller wheat is that if you do start pushing a a head that's quite big it acts as a lever and it can fall over or what's called Mm. lodging and that's the reason that breeding went in favour of semi-dwarfing genetics so wheats that were shorter and easy they, to harvest. Well, easy to harvest, yeah. higher yield. Yep. At the same time that those wheats were developed in earnest, so there's an early history to them as well, but with Strampali in Italy, but Norman Borlaug in, at Simit in Mexico and I guess through the 50s and 60s, what you might call the Green Revolution, what he's called the Green Revolution. So high-yielding genetics, increased mechanisation and use of chemical fertilisers mm. that you could really push yield with. So the intention was to get us out of a bit of a, a bind with yield and starvation events at that mm. time, and it did that. It was a solution that probably wasn't meant to go for as long as it has. We, we might have come up with a different mode of agriculture by now, and, you know, they are developing. Yeah. But for a time, that was a the solution, and we're sort of stuck in that solution now yeah. a little bit in many ways. Yeah. I noticed, I, the first time I noticed that there was a, a hell of a change to, to wheat was a, a, a tour of, of England, and I was taking a Botanica tour over there um, many years ago, and I noticed a, a lot of the fields were growing very, very short wheat, yeah. which was obviously, you know, lot, great big heads on them, but just very short. And that opened up another problem for that, the industry. Because there's an awful lot of thatched roof, roof houses over there, sure. so they so that if, yeah. if you wanted to rethatch your your, your house, yeah. you had to go and see the farmers yeah. and get a different wheat grown by mm-hmm. the farmer that gave them a much taller stem on them, so they could actually use that for thatching yeah. the roofs. So it's probably <laughs> um, the the last sort of great thatching wheat I think that came out of the UK was one called Maris Widgeon, and quite a good baking wheat as well. But yeah, taller, stronger stem, like a say a rye in stem strength yeah. and they now favour not wheat but a reed that's harvested in typically in Eastern Europe now I've, I've forgotten the name thatching, maybe yeah. a Phragmites or something I don't know yeah. but for thatching though of course people still don't grow those specialist crops yeah. whereas typically older wheats that were meant for grain or feed or grazing could also have been used for the thatching because of their their length so jason how did you initially when you started off how did you initially access the heritage and the ancient seeds where how did you access how did you decide which ones would go to work for you Uh, well i did a lot of research and you know what was appealing the first year genetically 
was perhaps different than what I'd choose now. But I looked at old what was grown, so I looked through trove and things like that across Australia, but typically in southern high rainfall zone and elsewhere around the world. What weeds were successful and big at the time for various reasons. So they might have been good for yield or disease resistances or flower or mm. what have you, the quality of the grain. Mm. So I did some research and then you can access them in various ways. But initially I got some from the Australian Grains Gene Bank uh, over at Horsham. The Australian Grains Gene Bank is the second or third largest cereals collection. It's the third largest cereals collection globally. It's very, very big. So there's also Simit in Mexico. There's the USDA collection, which is very big. The other big one is the Vavilov Institute in St. Petersburg, which was founded on the collections of Nikolai Vavilov, who's an interesting early collector who described early centres of biodiversity and what plants were domesticated and from where. Uh, so I got some samples from them. They, you mm-hmm. get like a 5-gram, 10-gram packet of a seed. I sowed them in by hand and um, just poking them in the ground as you would uh, a garden plant, I suppose, and then watched them grow, tended them. Some of them we liked the look of, so we grew them again. So we've done that year on year for a number of years and I always have a trial site where I'm trialling things for the first time. So we always have, uh, I guess, a library of wheats that um, we like. What is in that library has changed over time. So this year we're milling some of those varieties that we initially sowed and liked. And some of them are great and we enjoyed baking with them and milling them. Other ones I've sort of changed my thinking on what might be something to take forward. So older wheats often have issues to do with disease resistances. Um, Pathogens change over time and if in the early days of uh, wheat breeding, the golden era, I guess from 1890s onwards, if they found something that was uh, resistant to particular disease, they would grow it again. But those pathogens also adapt and are overcome. So that sort of quest to find something that yields well, has good functionality and also good disease resistances has been ongoing as a project of humanity yeah. for a long time yeah. Yeah. one of the one of the, the biggest things that, that i i noticed about wheat and flour and bread mm-hmm. is that my wife absolutely loves bread she'd eat bread you know breakfast lunch and dinner yeah but it builds up in her and and she gets aches and pains from you know from the the, the, the white wheat that that you can consume now um and and it can really upset her the white, uh, the white bread yeah yeah, yeah. so there's a few f- facets to that. Some of it's genetic, a lot of it's not. And some of it's just our consumption of those protein chains that uh, upset us has increased. So mm-hmm. across all kinds of food, not just in our bread. I've been thinking about this recently because there's definitely ways to improve ease of digestion of our bread. Some of it has a genetic basis. So you, you choose something that is easily digestible and we've identified the things that, that have. Yep. and. In recent times, our ability to identify those things in not just older wheats but modern wheats has grown and there is, a, I guess, a strong case to add another silo in breeding. So you've got your yield, your disease resistance and your functionality. Why not add uh, ease of digestion or ease of mil- uh, mm-hmm. milling facet to that breeding quest because we know what aids ease of digestion now. You can select from the back catalogue or you can breed varieties that have these traits of yep. ease of digestion. The other facet is milling the flour so it's not low extraction flour. So it's high extraction. There's a It incorporates the bran and germs. It doesn't have to be wholemeal, but it, 
if you say 85% extract extraction flour, so there's quite a lot of brown in Germany. That's why you get the colour and the flavour that's distinct to a variety. When you have that in it, your digestion is better. It can also increase some of the antagonists by having that in there. The trick is to have it as a sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. So sourdough, a long fermentation sourdough. So if you have a bread that's only got three ingredients, so you've got your flour, your water, and a bit of salt for flavour. So you get your, your flour right, how you mill it, the genetics you use. Then rather than using a, a commercial yeast or having bread produced in what's called the Chorley wood process, which is basically effectively like whipping it into a, a mousse and the things, it's gone from mixing to finished product in mm-hmm. three hours you have a long fermentation so you add a, a sourdough starter or the mother and you mix it in with the dough it with the flour and the water and then that rests for a bit and over time i guess an analogy would be the components that are antagonists to di- do your digestion transform with sourdough bread so they become more readily digestible mm-hmm. So people who are on a FODMAP diet or are irritated by fructans and things like that, those antagonists are neutralised by the act of... Um, oh, wow. uh, ..through baking in long fermentation. Yeah. So, And even more so, if you have long fermentation where it's proof-retarded, so not ambient, meaning you put it in a fridge overnight and then you bake it off in the morning, so that extending it a bit longer, there are other uh, bacterias that enhance flavour and things like that, but they also... Um, further that ease of digestion so mm. people that struggle with particular types of bread when they uh, eat a long fermentation for sourdough with all the components we've spoken yep. about they don't have the problem that uh, <laughs> well uh, yeah. when when we discovered your bread um because you you know you, you don't just grow the wheat you That's actually mill it yeah um you, and you stone mill it so we've got a stone mill and a roller mill so yep. So stone milling is uh, a great way to create a, a wholemeal flour that incorporates the bran and the germ in the... So you're getting all the goodness in there. Yeah. However, you can do that with a roller mill too. But people's understanding of roller milling is attached to the advent of industrial food processing. So when we think roller milling, we think white flour, yeah. low extraction flour, only the endosperm. So none of the bran and the germ, the, com- the complexity of uh, nutrition that you can get in grain. However, roller mills as a technology are able to do the exact same thing that stone mills can do. It's just how that technology is applied. And so what we do is have, I guess, a human-scale milling business that has stone mill and a roller mill. We can produce any kind of flour we like out of either mill. Mm -hmm. The roller mill is probably more versatile. There is something to how both milling systems take the bran off and reduce the size of the particles it's a bit different however the functionality of the flour if you're aiming for a particular specification is the same mm-hmm. but sometimes roller mills if in a softer wheat they can take off the bran in bigger flakes so to reincorporate that as a whole meal flour will be different to a, a stone mill yeah. flour but you can also reduce those flakes to smaller particle sizes in a roller mill and get uh, different spec flours i guess on that particle size there is some recent research about particle size also aiding digestion, so the peristalsis and the sort of physical function of your, your body. So those sort of shaggy flowers that look like they're poorly milled and the loaves are often dense and things like that, they're often quite good for your digestion uh, in term, because of the fibre element yeah. and the size of it also aids with peristalsis. Oh, so, incredible. Yeah. 
So, Jason, you so you, you grow it, you mill it into flour, and you package it to sell directly to your customers, correct? I mean, that's what yeah. the business does. What are you selling? I mean, do you have a, a variety, a large variety of wheat? How do we buy it? You know, what what is the whole process? Yeah, so we've got um, a lot of different varieties, more than most people. We've, we've grown a large selection of wheat. We do sell it as a retail product, both online and, and in shops, uh, locally and in Melbourne. And we also sell a wholesale flour product to uh, bakeries locally and in the city. And we've just opened a bakery on our farm uh, both to test our grain but also to value add so we're on a small farm wheat farms aren't typically on the farm size of ours so we lease land locally as well and um, also this year at uh, Coralin at the top of Western Port so we're growing across a few sites and we have the bakery there because we have such a diversity of wheat we'd love to work with the bakers there are very experienced Emily and Dave dealing with uh, different types of wheat and flour and we're trying to produce something that is identity preserved so wheat that is a reflection of the flour that was milled that is a reflection of the the variety was grown and also the place it was grown so Mm. so can we come and buy it can we come to the bakery or you can yeah yeah so we we do (laughs) uh, (laughs) yeah so thursday to sunday we drive it around to a few peninsula to various outlets you know from Portsy to analyzer. We also, you can come to the farm and, and buy it and see what we're up to. And that's, uh, and that's generally between 8 and 10, is that right? Yeah, so, yeah, 8, to get out there well, early. Yeah, <laughs> eight and 12, but get, if you get there early, you're, you're you more get, likely to get, get what some you, you want. Yes. Yeah. So we're probably going to give that a bit more of a push in the coming months Fantastic. and um, mm. expand our direct retail offering. Yeah. Well, we started off, we started off buying your baguette. Lovely. And loved the baguette. And then we got the we got the cob or the small loaf. Yeah. The country is it the country loaf, is it? Yeah, country sourdough. Yeah. And then the one that, that uh, we've recently fallen absolutely in love with because it's just magnificent is your, your ciabatta. The ciabatta. It yeah. is sensational. Well, uh, yeah, with the ciabatta, Emily, the baker, has worked on recently. And so it's. I'm liking it now too, yeah. actually. Yeah. I and love it. it. Yeah. yeah. Initially, I, I was like, ah, oh, ciabatta, it's a bit boring, you know, a little slipper <laughs> of bread and blah, blah, blah. But actually, I. I like it. The other loaves I like is our larger loaf, the 1.2 kilo Bordeaux, which is made from Rouge de Bordeaux, which is an 1800s French uh, red wheat, which has the flavour and digestion profiles that we like. The trouble is they're they're older varieties and they yield, you know, three three tonnes a hectare instead of 10 tonnes a hectare. So so what... You've gone to the to the, the seed bank and you've you've got some small parcels of of, of grain and you've grown those and you've built up enough... To harvest and use yourself. Yeah. So thanks for getting me back on yep. uh, the line of questioning. Yeah, Keith. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. It takes several years. We identify ones we like, and then if we take them forward the subsequent year, you got to grow them again, and then get enough, and then try and get the quality potential from that grain. Mm-hmm. So hitting particular protein marks and what have you. So after harvest, you got to clean the grain, then you sow it again. Hopefully the next year. There's a lot of risks along the way. You know, we've lost a few varieties we really loved. Mm. Um, various years, every year we lose something that we wish we hadn't of either um, birds or kangaroos uh, or yeah. not not getting to it in time because we were doing something else or yeah. whatever. So yeah, there's various 
risks along the way. But yeah, this last year has been great because things that we had started from t- those tiny amounts, we are able to mill and bake with and get a better sense of what we like about mm-hmm. those ones. Rather than in small milling tests, we can say this is definitely one we want to take forward yeah. and then you can grow it in bulk. Yeah. That's fantastic. I need to, I think after all that talking about bread, I need to um, let our listeners know exactly what your website is. Oh, sure. So it is turongfarm.com.au and turong is spelt T-U-E-R-O-N-G. So uh, uh, listeners can go onto the website and access the various flowers. Obviously not the bread because you're not going to be sending the bread <laughs> out by Australian well, Post. No, we don't send it out, but you can order it online and come and pick it up yeah so if you're local yeah if you're local that's fantastic so now i just wanted to also quickly just ask for anyone who might like to try growing wheat at home Mm. can you offer any tips or suggestions or not (laughs) look it's uh, i mean it's like growing anything else if there's adequate nutrition it'll go well so there are a few things along the way it depends on the variety you're growing but um just if you're just growing to have a look at the plant give it plenty of room and um so it doesn't have to be sown in close together in rows like you do in a commercial situation if you just push a couple of seeds in a pot those single seeds will actually tiller far more extensively than they will with lots of neighbors so you'll still get a very full plant with you know maybe 60 tillers and lots of Lots of heads, birds, and things like that could be Love a them. problem at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, always with everything. I think that's the case, isn't it? It is, isn't it? My backyard covered in nets. Yes, yeah. and that's you know vegetables all the way through. So yeah. it's just the way that it is. But look, I'm 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 really stoked that you've come in and 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 spoken to us, Jason, because. You know, we we love, or I particularly love, the, you know, the the heirloom story and the heritage story. You know, of, of keeping and maintaining our history and our past, rather than dumping down on this bloody genetically modified crap that, you know, you can't harvest and, and regrow because it's. Oh, oh, you mean F one hybrids? Yep. So that's not in Australia and um, not really a thing that um, is big in the wheat world it's very hard to produce a lot of f1 hybrids cheaply and you don't get the heterosis or hybrid benefit that you do in other plants with wheat it's still something that they're tinkering with in terms of gmo wheat there's currently none grown in australia however it was approved last year the hb4 gene out of argentina which confers um resilience in drought the yield benefit is supposed to be you know over a 10 year period when you have a stressful year you'll get a, an uptick in yield because it's able to accumulate biomass during stressful periods however it's not a significant uptick mm-hmm. and the social opposition to gmo wheat in particular is quite high so it's an interesting space it's also interesting because australia being uh, i guess a minnow globally we, we can define ourselves in different ways than other countries can in providing commodities into uh, for export. Mm. And if we start doing GMO, we potentially we're just creating a level playing field against um, you know North America and yeah. other countries when really we could be exporting something to a market that demands non-GMO like Europe. Fair enough. That, well, yes. that's all good. I mean, we're so glad that you're growing these beautiful old varieties and uh, allowing us to uh, to taste them from the, the bakery, which is just absolutely brilliant. We are lucky to be neighbours, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. We've got to unfortunately wind it up. But the best of luck with Turong Farm. I, for one, and Keith, I think as well, won't be picking up a pack of flour from the supermarket any time soon. <laughs> Thank oh, you. That's great. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Muddy Boots. For more information on today's podcast, please go to muddyboots.net.au and happy gardening.